Welcome to the Tree of Prima podcast, a podcast about Freemasonry and the Western esoteric tradition. I'm Pat. I'm here with Jake and Jamie. Joining us is Nathan Schick, author of The Grand Communication, Freemasonry's Alchemical Quest for Divine Communion, just released on Tree of Prima Press. Nate is a master mason, a member of Glendale Lodge number 23 in Glendale, Arizona. He's also a master ritualist and a master lecturer under the Grand Lodge of Arizona. Welcome, Nate. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Hi, Nate. Hey. Nate, it's great to see you. So um, I think before all else, maybe we should get a a bit of an introduction on who you are, Nate, um, for the audience. You're a professor of religious studies at Arizona State. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah. I teach uh, in the School of History, Philosophy, and Religious Studies at Arizona State. Um, I teach a wide range of religious studies classes, something like um, 12 different courses in our course catalog. Um, So wide range of courses from freshman level all the way up. And so uh, a lot of my students at ASU obviously have uh, not a lot of background information about uh, some of the history uh, but are really interested based on, you know, pop culture things, um, things that mention the Philosopher's Stone from Harry Potter and the like. So they are in some ways cursory familiarity with uh, some ideas without a lot of the background history and some of the literature. And so uh, for my students, uh, that's a little bit about how I got interested in this subject from sort of part of my uh, career. Um, but I'm also a Freemason. I'm the senior warden at uh, Glendale Lodge 23 in beautiful Glendale, Arizona. And um, I've been a Freemason since 2017. And I started presenting educations at my lodge and other lodges uh, around the state and then in other jurisdictions as well, uh, talking about some of my perspectives on Freemasonry, the history, symbolism, the ritual. Um, I started working pretty intensely on uh, the ritual here in Arizona, became a master lecturer uh, in 2022, and uh, this year became a master ritualist in the Grand Lodge of Arizona. So, Congrats. Yeah, that's a lot of work, huh? I mean, yeah, learning all three degrees, open, close, obligate, all the the charges. Yeah. Yeah, it's a a lot of work and there's a lot of sections in Arizona ritual, at least, that have really long form. I mean, the lectures are 20 to 25 minutes of just straight memorization. It's a lot of work. Um, It's it's obviously, you know, pretty challenging uh, kind of ritual work. Um, But at Glendale, we do a lot of ritual and we get a lot of opportunity to practice and Uh, I think we're very proud of the uh, rigorous standards we have for our ritual. And so it's a really good environment to learn ritual and to practice and refine your ritual quality and the like. So, yeah. You know, since we're on that subject, just I I don't know if it's a digression. Well, we do want to get into the book, but a little digression about the value of memorization. I mean, what could you say about, because you've obviously done tons of work on this, and I've told people, you know, and I firmly believe that memorization is one of the single most important things we do in the Blue Lodge and, and developing that. So what kind of, have you felt, or observed any sort of transformation? 
approach to the craft. Yeah, I, I remember you guys talking about this on a previous episode on, on the podcast too, a little bit. Um, and you know, it's two things. One, not all Masons are going to be able to memorize, especially long form, twenty minutes, twenty five minutes of a, a long form. I mean, that's unrealistic to expect all brothers to be able to do that, right? So it's difficult in that sense. But I think that what I've found personally uh, really helpful about memorizing is that process of internalizing some of the ideas. The the concepts don't just become something that you say, it's something that you internalize and start to do and think about in your own actions, in your own life. Um, for me, as I've done educations, it also helps me to be able to draw quickly from some of the lines in our Masonic ritual to illustrate certain points that I'm trying to draw from within some of the talks or even in writing some of the sections of the book, I was able to quickly draw from some of those sections of ritual that I already knew to be able to smoothly draw a point about something of the history or the symbol or the ritual itself. Right. Yeah. So I think we probably all first met you in a Masonic setting. In fact, I think I first met you when you were doing a presentation on, you know, basically what would be become your thesis for your book or part of the thesis for your book. And uh, a fantastic lecture, obviously, sort of um, started the relationship that ended up birthing this book. But um, the book, in reading the book, uh, I thought it was uh, interesting. It sounds like you, the book is a, a compilation of what you were teaching in your classes, right? I mean, it, it was um, stuff that you were already fleshing out and sort of educating your students on, and uh, you wanted to sort of present a resource for not just students, but of course, Masons and the world in general. But am, am I right? Is that kind of how the, the construction of the book went? Yeah, I mean, kind of a dual audience of some of my students. I teach a range of different courses. So some of the popular ones like um, religion and pop culture and um, uh, religion, magic and the occult, you know, some of those uh, classes that have really fun titles and allow us to talk about some of the categories of religion and magic and anthropological kind of ways. Um, but also for my uh, educations at my Masonic lodges, both that were private just for Masons, but also uh, educations that were public that helped to explain some of the history and some of our symbols to people who have come to the lodges, maybe family members or friends uh, who have a little bit of knowledge about Freemasonry, but maybe don't know a lot about its roots and its history and um, some of the intrigue around the, the start of Freemasonry. Um, and so for both of those audiences, I, I tried to make my presentation such that they would be accessible. They'd be easy for anyone approaching the subject to understand the nature of some of the interconnections without it getting too bogged down in jargon or highfalutin $5 words and the like. And so uh, I hope that that carried over from the presentations to the book material itself. Um, because, you know, I'm thinking of students who are, you know, freshmen and sophomores and oftentimes for Masons, 
brothers who are new to some of the material, new to some of the ideas. And so, you know, even in thinking about how you guys have formulated Tria Prima and the, and the podcast of the three of you with different levels of uh, experience, maybe, or something like that. Uh, Pat, I'm aiming it at you. It's definitely more the, uh, oh, the, the novice, you know, kind of uh, the newer uh, person approaching some of the, the topics. And, and that, I, I think, is what my aim was, who that my imagined audience was, uh, both Masons and non-Masons alike who might be interested in the history of alchemy and the quest for the philosopher's stone and its its interconnections with the dawn of Freemasonry, the Royal Society, the early parts of science and the scientific method, um, and you know I think uh, a lot of the way that I tried to tell it kept it to be interesting and fun, but also approachable. Yeah, the way it reads to me is like um, not like. I, I don't know if I'd say like novice level because I think there's definitely some depth to it and it's, you know, historical depth and other and conceptual depth. I think it's more foundational because it is the, you know, you're dealing with so many foundational ideas, but you're not dealing with them, you know, like you're talking to a five-year-old. It's, um, I think it's the right size, you know what I mean? I think it's the right uh, middle, you know, it's it's very approachable, but not dumb. You know yeah, what I what I really liked is it like it you 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 start in the beginning, like literally you start at the Old <laughs> Testament, and and you kind of build upon all these ideas and kind of see how they eventually maybe lead to Freemasonry. And um, I I appreciated that being able to see kind of the the step backward and the step backward and the step backward, kind of back to uh, the Old Testament. Um, I mean, it's alchemy, hermeticism, uh, and, and really, what other thing I really liked is that, like the really interesting characters. There's a lot of interesting character characters in this book. Um, you know, Eli- Elias Ashmole. There's uh, that Emperor Rudolph II. I mean, there's like a lot of interesting people who have kind of this little influences that. Um, on what we know as masonry, I was thinking maybe it might be interesting to hear from you. Who were some of the most interesting characters that you came across um, while you were researching this? Yeah, um, well, it's true that these are uh, intimately intertwined with the understanding of lineages of where this chain of knowledge from antiquity develops and who the important linkages are, and you see. Obviously, you know, with the notion of Hermes and the debates about uh, Hermes' place in the lineage um, becomes sort of critical in in the intertwining in Freemasonry. Obviously, Elias Ashmole is a critical character for that lineage um, because so many different things are intertwined in his life as an antiquarian, as someone who's collecting a lot of different uh, archival information, stuff that's going to be kept uh, for generations thereafter. And uh, so obviously, I think in his life, one of the things that is maybe underappreciated is his uh, adoption by William Backhouse. And the nature of that sort of adoption, uh, to me, was something I wasn't as familiar with. I knew some of the other lineage, but I guess the importance of that uh, is a critical episode in his life. And so, you know, I think Ashmole's life is obviously uh, a interesting one. 
Um, you see in, I guess, well, for, uh, for, Francis. For, for, for people who don't know, like what was his big um, contribution? Sure. So Ashmole is maybe the first, I think of him as our first papered Freemason. He's not a, a stone builder. He's not in the operative building uh, uh, guild. He joins Freemasonry then as a speculative endeavor. He is uh, part of the gentry, so he never builds as a stonemason. And he joins during the height of the English Civil Wars, this time period where society is being you know, rent asunder and ripped apart by religious and political cleavages. Um, and it's, you know, in England after the Thirty Years' War. And so there's been this ongoing experience of religious and political division. Ashmole writes in his diary that he is initiated during the English Civil War, is initiated uh, with Colonel Mainwaring, who is a parliamentarian, even while he is, Ashmole is a royalist. So these are guys across the divide in the English Civil War who sit in lodge and go through two of the degrees. They become apprentices and they become fellows of the craft. They're the first guys we can really look to and say they're doing something similar to what we do today as a speculative endeavor of a series of degrees. Um, but at that time, we can't see anything of a third degree in masonry. Masonry appears to be at that point uh, a two-degree endeavor of sorts. Um, Ashmole is also interesting because of his uh, publication of the Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum, this uh, English um, alchemical collection that he prints with the printing press. It's not a manuscript copy. So it's the first real collection that gets put out en masse, in a sense. And he does it in part because he's seen the devastation during the civil wars and um, from the, the Thirty Years' War of what happens when materials get burned and destroyed. And so he's looking to put together an archive with his collection, but also looking to publish with the Theatrum, uh, Chemicrum Britannicum specifically, a curated collection, one that he's gone through finally and made sure that they are what he sees as authentic alchemical texts uh, for people to trace down. And because of his relationship, his uh, initiation by William Backhouse, he has an experience that he sees as transformative. It's deep. He writes about it in his uh, personal copy of the Theatrum and in his journal about the nature of this. He sees it as not just another initiation, another kind of experience, um, but he sees it as an ordination into a kind of true clergy, not just one riven by the divisions of religious confession, but something even deeper. So whatever he has happened by being adopted by this alchemical father, William Backhouse, is deep. He sees it as transformative and important. And so it becomes sort of a question about, well, what happened in that uh, initiation? You know, and Ashmole's role in the dawn of the Royal Society as a scientific uh, um, community, and specifically his writing about John Dee and the materials by which John Dee has this communion with angels and angelic entities becomes a fascination for the early Royal Society, for the Royal Society members who are sort of in that cusp period of developing 
the scientific method, not a fully fleshed out method yet. And they're researching and willing to do experimentation with some of these different chemicals from alchemy to see what kind of experiences they have themselves. Ashmole in that lineage then becomes a critical kind of figure. Do you think, so question on the theatrum. So obviously for, you know, uh, centuries, the, this, the essential nature of alchemy has been debated upon, you know, um, on whether it's uh, more of a philosophical endeavor or more of a technical endeavor. And then, of course, these different characters throughout history um, argue about what, what are the true sort of alchemical manuscripts or true alchemical poems and texts and whatnot. And you'll see some, some that are proponents of the, the more literal physical um, science of alchemy or the art rather it'd be artificial. So the art of alchemy um, or the more philosophical text. So do you think that the theatrum um, could shed some light on his attitude going into Freemasonry? Is it a compilation of more philosophical alchemical texts? That's the way I guess I've read it before, or is it a collection of more technical alchemical texts? And do you think that 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 we can glean some sort of idea about his uh, attitude towards his other endeavors, mainly Freemasonry? Well, I think with the theatrum, um, there's an interesting notion here of his collections and his penchant for collecting as an antiquarian. He's collecting things that he wants to see as authentic. He wants them to be verified in some kind of way, right? And so it's the process of curation of what we think of today as curating a museum or a collection of some sort, right? Um, Ashmole's, when he bequeaths his collection to Oxford, it becomes the Ashmolean uh, Museum and becomes really a first museum in the modern sense of one that's meant to be curated from what is uh, verifiable or something along those lines and really a modern museum in that sense. And I think similarly, when you look at uh, the original Theatrum Chemicum and as a series, as a, uh, an ongoing published series of collections, and then Ashmole's collection of the Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum He's paring some things down uh, there intentionally. It's it's curating of a sort um, to, to find which things he thinks is authentic. Part of it is obviously philosophical, but there's all obviously to the, um, the the scrap materials, the twenty or so collections that are not fully fleshed out. And Ashmole is obviously interested too in the botanical part, which is much more practical parts of it. Um, He's uh, writing about and including those portions that have the botanical um, components. And he goes out assembling and collecting materials and is familiar with that sort of practice as something practical, pragmatic. It's something that sure. he's So he's, he's doing, doing alchemy. He's right, doing right. alchemy and, and studying the philosophical concepts at the, at the same time. Duly, yeah. And it seems like, you know, he had he had like his toe in a lot of different ponds, right? So he was, he was, uh, William Lilly's patron, you know, the famous British astrologer, William Lilly. He also had, I think in that Ashmolean collection, he had like, wasn't it like, um, well, he had several versions of the, uh, 
the Key of Solomon. So he had grimoire collections in there. He had astrological stuff. He had alchemical stuff. So he has this whole gamut of that old worldview that was just starting to slip away, you know, with the rise of the Royal Society and, you know, the scientific revolution and the, you know, Copernican revolution and things like that. It seems like he was on that cusp of the old magical worldview just starting to decline while this other world ascended. Is that about right yeah i think it's he definitely has this feel of as the the world as his society and societies in uh europe are tearing each other apart he sees a need for collecting and maintaining Mm -hmm. these antiquities of a wide variety right i mean these collections then become massive they are uh covering a wide array of items, of scientific um, um, new uh, methods, new um, objects, but also then um, different, uh, you know, different seals and sigils and uh, armory and the like. So it's a wide ranging collection that's meant to show the variety of things from antiquity. Another another section of the book that that kind of had me fascinated was that the part talking about the old charges mixed with the uh, the the Anderson Constitution charge the the, the Noah versus the Hiram stuff right. that was fascinating I, I I had no idea about that um, can you would you mind just kind of talking a little bit about that Sure so like you mentioned I opened yep. the book with some different discussions of, of some of the biblical materials, right? And when you look at the period before the Bible is published in English with the King James Version um, in uh, 1611, the knowledge of the Bible is only from Latin, uh, and there's a pretty strict maintenance on that. And most people didn't know Latin, weren't literate, didn't have access to a copy of the Bible, So their knowledge of biblical material and the lineage, the timeline, the chronology from Adam through to Moses, and then the different figures of history wasn't clearly understood, uh, understandably so. Most people's exposure to biblical knowledge was limited. Um, And so when you look at these old charges, the earliest written Uh, texts that we have that still have some direct relevance from the operative period of the stonemasons guilds to what we do today. There's still some elements of what are written in these old charges that we still do today that are still found in our ritual today. Um, And the earliest one starts in about 1425 or so. Uh, There's a couple from the 1500s, and then they start to pick up. There's several from the 1600s. And they're all somewhat similar, and they all trace a lineage, this kind of lineage of where masonry emerges. Um, and they talk about these pillars, and they talk about uh, you know the, where the original masons are formulated and the like. And in that history, then, this notion of a flood uh, and the one pillar having information or knowledge that is after the flood saved and reintroduced to humanity. 
And so there becomes this question of what is that knowledge that's saved from this period and written on these uh, pillars? Now, clearly in the old charges, the people and their knowledge, the people who write this, their knowledge of the biblical material is loose, to say the least. But it's before the publication of the Bible in English. It's before the printing press, the first one, right? So it's understandable about their confusion of some of the lineage and and the people in that lineage. Um, But one of the questions that emerges has to do with what was that knowledge that was saved after the flooding of the world uh, that's picked up the, the charges, the old charges say, by Hermes and taught to the people of how to build and the like. Um, And the question in early Freemasonry has to do with that lineage of what was that knowledge in effect? When we look at the word ark, uh, as it's used in the biblical, there is, it's translated from Hebrew and uh, Greek into Latin and eventually using this word ark. And we come to think of it as a box, um, something that's an enclosure that keeps the stuff that is important and valuable safe. And so we see that originally with the word arcos in the sense of like the architect who builds the city walls so that when enemies come to uh, lay siege, all the people go inside and keep what's valuable there. But then over time, that notion of the ark, you know, as we understand it, we utilize it for understanding things in the biblical materials, including the box that keeps what's valuable in the Noah story uh, when uh, God destroys the world, all the animals go, all of life goes inside of this box, this ark. And then similarly, when we look at the Ark of the Covenant, that is the ark found in the Temple of Solomon, we see another ark, another box that contains the revelations from God, the the uh, tablets that have those direct revelations from God handed to Moses. So we see then in these two arcs, these two boxes that keep that which is valuable, the Noah Ark and the, the Ark in the Temple of Solomon, um, two different ideas or models of, of this kind of notion of the Ark. And we look at early Freemasonry and we see the third degree develops with two different characters, two different settings effectively for the third degree. And they both emerge roughly at the same time, somewhere in and about 1723, 24, 25, we get these manuscripts that start to emerge that detail some of the same things that we still do to this day in our third degree. Um, One of the stories that you find in the Graham manuscript is about Noah and the death of Noah And a lot of the features of the third degree then are the same, but are to do with Noah and his life. And so that implies something of Noah and Noah's art. Um, And that particular model of ritual, the Noahite ritual, gets picked up by the ancients in early Freemasonry when the the schism first takes place. There's a following of the older Noahite ritual um, that's, that's described as something that comes earlier. But then the other of the third degrees, the setting is at the building of King Solomon's temple and has to do then with the Ark sort of notion at the Temple of Solomon and becomes known as the Hiramic legend, the the, uh, the ritual being about Hiram Abiff as a builder of King Solomon's temple. And you see then the cleavage, the split between these two portions of early Freemasonry, the uh, model of Noah and the Noahkite lodges 
and the model of Hiram and the Hiramic legend with the premier Grand Lodge and the fight over that being then the ancients and the moderns, right? So, of course, we're talking Old Testament, and uh, as far as I'm aware, that guy Hermes is not really uh, a character in the Bible as we know it. Where does this Hermes guy come from? And, you know, as far as I'm aware, that's an Egyptian, a Greco Egyptian idea. Where does this, um, where do the lines cross, I guess? Where do we, where do we get Hermes? Is for that, Freemasonry, sure, yeah. yeah. In terms of, yeah, the history of Freemasonry. Yeah, well, so obviously the the character um, of Hiram Abiff is then for the Hiramic legend, the one main character. Um, Hermes Trismegistus becomes um, uh, something of an interesting character that as the development of the Christian church um, over time takes place, as with all of the monotheisms, they all have to deal with at some point, well, what about the stuff that came before us? What about the, the materials, the ideas, the symbols that come before the development of this particular phase of monotheism? Um, I talk about it uh, a little bit in the book with uh, Apollonius of Tyana with Islam, and there's a sort of an interesting reflection on uh, him as a pre-Islamic character. Um, but with uh, Christianity, there's the development early on of this debate about the nature of Hermes Trismegistus, this combined character of um, Thoth and Hermes and Mercurius of the Egyptian Greco-Roman sort of uh, period. Um, a lot of the texts that are attributed to Hermes um, become lost in, from antiquity into the medieval period. Um, but then during the Renaissance, when there is part of the collection that's rediscovered with the, the collection that becomes the known as the Corpus Hermeticum, with the Renaissance and this rebirth of knowledge, and especially during the age of exploration and the need for uh, astronomical knowledge for new maps of the stars as a political endeavor, as you're competing with the other empires during this age of exploration, there's a need to go back to the stars uh, and star maps. And the nature of Hermes as, uh, and the Hermetic material as having a relationship directly with astronomical and astrological features and, and um, symbols then gets looked to as part of that Renaissance as, and becomes patronized by a lot of these uh, royal courts and empires as a political endeavor in the age of empires. We see then in the immediate aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, the English Civil Wars, um, part of the notion of Hermes I think the belief runs that because Hiram as a name in the Bible sounds similar to Hermes, that there was an easy way to graft on some symbols of Hermeticism of that Renaissance period onto the Masonic third degree by taking some of the elements found in the Noachite ritual, changing it to be the setting of King Solomon's temple and this character Hiram Abi found in the Bible to be Hiram Abiff, and using some of those hermetic symbols to graft onto that third degree so that those in the know would be able to decrypt some of these hermetic symbols 
those who wouldn't would just see the symbols as being something um, that they didn't understand or maybe didn't see as important. Were those symbols um, specific to particular ideas that are important, should be important for Masons? Are there particular hermetic symbols uh, that uh, allude to specific ideas? Maybe, you know, if you can give us an example or, you know, were they, were they, just thrown in there for looks or potentially uh, we might've lost Um, Jamie. (laughs) Well, so, you know, one of the things I think that they, uh, whoever the composers of the third degree are, I think that there's good evidence for it being John Theophilus de Sagulier, the third grandmaster of the premier grand lodge in London. Um, But brilliantly, some of the material from those old charges, I mean, the oldest material that we still have in our degrees has to do with the the seven liberal arts and sciences. Um, Jamie's written a brilliant book on that uh, particular topic, but it is the element that is the, the core that you find in those old charges that carries on. There's an interesting way where if looked at from a certain perspective, the notion of the trivium and the quadrium, then um, from this hermetic sort of perspective, changes sort of tone. It changes sort of the lens by which you might see some of those particular practices, right? Um, you know, so that's maybe one way to, to no, consider. No, I'm losing my connection. Come back to us. Jamie's connection, man. Jamie's disconnected. Find a better connection, Jamie, but <laughs> uh, but mute yourself till you do. Okay, so where where were we at here? Where Wait, hold on. Well, <laughs> we so can't. I guess one of we're the not gonna. Can... <laughs> I'll just talk past him. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. Just keep going. I mean... One of the, the um, I guess, easy ones to talk a little bit about that is another publication by Tria Prima. Um, I mean, P.D. Newman's last book, Angels in Vermilion, and his previous book, uh, Alchemically Stone, talk about uh, acacia, the acacia symbol, um, and that notion of um, cassia and acacia and some of the uh, attempts to uh, differentiate that as a botanical, as something specific. But it's a good question. Like, why is the acacia in the degree? Why is it a symbol in Freemasonry? Why Why is that per- the particular plant that you find there? It, the notion of it otherwise seems a little out of place. But once you lay yeah. on the alchemical lens, it suddenly looks a lot more um, understandable. There's a, a better fit. It's like, oh, well, if this is something that's implying something of the hermetic sciences and hermetic arts and the symbol of acacia, a very interesting symbol, uh, an interesting plant as a botanical for the alchemical arts and sciences, then makes a lot of sense of it being there particularly, right? So that's maybe a a good uh, connection between some of uh, the other publications from Tria Prima to sort of connect some of these books together too. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's certainly probably in all the the books we've done so far are these uh interconnected stories that would all probably go quite well together the yeah, um, I, I guess i would say this too you know i i've obviously read both of those uh previous books 
And when Jamie said previously, you know, this is maybe foundational, I think that that's the case. I was aiming for something that really laid some of those background ideas and some of the lineages and connections so that, you know, as you read some of the other literature that's out there that's fantastic, it maybe helps connect them between one another well. And I guess that's, that's maybe what I think of for um, maybe not necessarily just novices, but for people who want to see some of those connections made uh, between some of the different hermetic arts and sciences. I hope that the book really lays some of that foundation well. Yeah, I think it does. The other thing that was great about the book is that I laughed. I didn't laugh at Angels and Vermilion. I didn't I didn't laugh. I haven't laughed at any of Jamie's books. I laughed at his part in, in the beginning of your book, certainly. But uh, nice. you have a great uh, voice throughout the, the book. And it's, it is, um, it's, I don't think easy is the best word, but it's a smooth read. Like it's a fun read. That's, that's what really sets your book apart from, uh, I think a lot of the other Masonic history books, definitely not dry. Like I laughed a few times. I didn't yeah, cry, I guess, but it, it's it like was having a beer with, with, it was with a fun me. time. <laughs> well, speaking of beer, so you were just talking about angels, obviously, and, and you know, this p- potential entheogenic connection um, and the botanical stuff. You, you have a section in your book, about um, beer brewing and that that sort of altered state of consciousness and this idea of an elixir of life and those sorts of things um can you can you tell us a little bit from a beer brewer's perspective um can you tell us a little bit about how that uh, narrative sort of is interwoven with this greater uh quest for the uh a philosopher's stone Sure. Yeah. And I, I think that's uh, maybe one of the unique things this book brings to the table. It's something I haven't really seen uh, drawn out quite so much in some of the other treatments of early Masonic history. Um, you know, early Masonic lodges were all effectively in pubs and alehouses. I mean, that's just sort of the nature of it before they move into lodges. Um, as somebody who has been brewing beer for 15 years or so. Um, you know, I started brewing beer and just learning from kits and then learning from uh, using mashing my own grains and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and as I learned the wide variety of things you could make beer from and things you could put into beer and ways that you could get yeast from everywhere, basically, mm. um, you know, I, I became more and more fascinated with some of the basic chemistry. It's not hard to brew beer, but it takes a little bit of care and a little bit of kitchen chemistry knowledge. So this is something that would have been known, you know, throughout history would have been widely known by, uh, you know, common people up to master brewers. So, you know, there's sort of a a range of knowledge. So one of the things as I have researched different recipes for brewing beer and looking into the history of brewing beer and the uh, different recipes as they develop through time, you know, I looked at some of these uh, recipes and writings from a beer brewing lens kind of thing. Um, and I think specifically, you know, the uh, royal physician of Emperor Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Thaddeus Hajek is uh, the royal physician, but he's also the first person who writes what is the scientific uh, 
description of how to brew hops beer. He's the first mm. one to do that. And I remember reading in a home brewer's magazine about this first text in which Tajik talks about the proper method to do it. It's the earliest example that we have. And when you read it, if you know a little bit about alchemical literature and you read it as a home brewer as well, for me, reading it sort of dually that way, um, I read it and realized he's talking about this as an alchemist. <laughs> he's, mm. he's reading, he's writing this from very much a, a practicing alchemist perspective. And then, yeah. you know, as I delved into the history um, and we went to Prague last year uh, to sort of do some research for the book and look at the, some of the sites, uh, you know, these are some of the oldest breweries, continuous breweries in the world, in Bohemia. Um, their knowledge of what makes up brewing was independent and unique to each location by the water, by the local flora, by who was the, the brewmaster. Um, these were somewhat guarded secrets uh, and people could be um, poached to come to other uh, courts. Mm. And Rudolph II was very interested in drawing some of the best brewmasters to the Brewer's Alley in Prague. And also drew a lot of alchemists uh, to uh, Prague and, and uh, patronized a lot of alchem alchemists and alchemical uh, laboratories and becomes famous for uh, Alchemist Alley in Prague and the like. And so seeing somebody like Hajik then writing as, you know, the first kind of modern brewer, hops beer brewer, but writing this in such a way that it sounds like alchemy, these stages of alchemy, then really eloquently shows that stage in that early modern, late Renaissance, early modern period, where they're still thinking in this mindset of a combination of things. Of It's not just pure materialism as chemistry, but is more in, as you consume this, there's things that can be infused into it, and it can change the feel of the individual, but also the group in during festivals and uh, community celebrations and rituals and the like. Yeah. So I was, uh, I guess my follow-up question was where you were just headed is, do, do you think that that was essential at some point in Masonic history? Was that, that slightly altered state of consciousness that a beer would have, you know, considering that they were all in pubs and ale houses and whatnot, do you think that that was, almost a part of the Masonic experience. Um, you know, not well, maybe letter of the law, but <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, you can see in the early exposures in the 1730s and the like, there's clearly toasting and the, the, those component parts are part of the ritual. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, a central part of it. And it's so much so that it's part of the exposures and it becomes part of some of the, spoofs and satire about the early lodges that they're imbibing and sometimes imbibing right. a lot. Uh, and, you know, sometimes tiptoeing to the line and sometimes maybe tiptoeing across the line. Um, it's hard to say about that early period in part because it's such a messy history. There's, there's not a lot of centralized control of the craft. There's lodges off doing their own kinds of things and they have their own brewmasters, effectively. They, they are brewing their own brews. This is before there's, you know, shipping and, you know, sort of branding of beers. And so what people are making at their local uh, 
pub that is their lodge, their local alehouse and the like, is up to the inventiveness and safety, I guess, of the brewmaster in the community. So that begs that kind of question. But you can see there's clearly in some early Mason's writings about this, that there is levels of intoxication that they're not used to, even as people who otherwise would imbibe in ales. So something else is taking place, at least in some of them. Now, that's Mm. not to say that that was commonplace for the craft per se, but the looseness, the decentralized nature of it, especially as it spreads around the globe with the English and French empires and the like, and as people encounter new flora and uh, new minerals in their locales as they spread out in the age of exploration and colonization, it's understandable that they're experimenting. And they're experimenting with things that they don't exactly know what it's going to do. But once they find something that consistently works in the ritual initiatory setting, I think that they start to develop a local culture and they start to rely Mm -hmm. on those local flora that they know will pop up in their area that they can collect, that they can maybe put into gardens and the like. Um, And then they become very protective of their local culture, their independent, autonomous nature of their lodge. And so that's part of that early history, the push and pull of a Grand Lodge central authority and the local lodges wanting to do some of the things that they've been doing for some time Mm. that aren't necessarily being followed or aren't necessarily part of the rules of the new the new Grand Lodges. Right. Do you think that culturally, like your typical meeting, like a stated or some sort of, you know, typical communication might have looked more like what we'd call a table lodge or a harmony board, as opposed to our, you know, how our stated communication is, it's, you know, a particular type of affair. Do you think maybe it, you know, because of the presence of, uh, alcohol and brewmeisters and things like that, that there might've been more of a table lodge feel. Yeah. It sounds like it from those early exposures, right? When you look at like Pritchard and the like, it sounds like that's the main part of the Masonic experience of the meetings um, that they are separating from the regular part of the pub uh, or alehouse but are doing things that you would do at a pub or alehouse, but you know, privately with the brethren but it also then adds these time periods that say when there is a candidate for initiation, they are then after these preliminary parts of the festivities are taken to a separate area, a room sort of kept with one of the brethren and then brought in through the initiatory experience. Um, And so it seems like the table lodge festive board, the kind of, Feasting and toasting was an important part of the the meetings themselves, including what we might think of as like business meetings that there's not an initiation taking place. Um, you know, it sounds like that was a critical part of what drew the different men of different classes together, right? We're talking about aristocracy, a developing middle class, working class that are rubbing shoulders in what seems like they should be separated, but rubbing shoulders and um, sharing drinks around a table and toasting one another. Yeah. Yeah. That always seemed to me like an, an, an old vestige of, you know, that sort of, you know, 18th century Freemasonry, you know, when it, because there's the songs and the things, you know, various charges and, you know, it just seems kind of really, 
18th century. But even the founding of the first Grand Lodge, right? You read in uh, Anderson's first constitutions, it's really about making sure that the feasts are observed, right? That's the re- mm. reason for formulating the Grand Lodge is for everybody to get together and right. make sure they have the, the big feast. So, you know, it seems like feasting and toasting was a critical part of the dawn of Freemasonry, right? <laughs> well, if you're a Mason yeah. listening, you better put together a St. John's feast if you're not already having one. It's coming up right. quick. So um, one thing that I didn't realize, I guess, um, until your book was um, – it's something we just touched on, but the cultural differences between these early lodges, like the – the things that they would pick up and sort of orient themselves towards, whether it was like, and I forget this very specific examples, maybe you can help me, but they were like uh, musician lodges or like a theater lodge or a brewing lodge. Like you had these lodges that picked up uh, some sort of art form or something and almost the lodge sort of became that to some extent. Am I, am I right in that? They had like a niche, right? Right. Yeah. You, you know, when you think of the Premier Grand Lodge in England, uh, in London, these the the first four lodges, you can see in their early minutes um, some of the differences of what's being presented as education. This is at the time period of the dawn of of Isaac Newton and the new science, Newtonian science being this sort of new. Uh, Vogue at the time. And one of the debates that takes place in part between these is what is Freemasonry as a speculative endeavor as it develops after they've rebuilt London after the Great Fire? It's taken roughly 50 years, not a lot of stonework being done. They're shifting to be philosophical or speculative uh, lodges. The question is, what are they going to be doing during these meetings? And you you get a a range of different... um, lodges by experience, by what they want to do. This is before pubs have, you know, TVs or um, are playing jukeboxes or anything like that. They weren't so playing what NFL doing, Sunday. They're what? There wasn't any NFL Sunday going on. So. No NFL Sunday, nothing to distract. So the entertainment was conversation, was music that was either played by someone uh, or as a group sung together. Mm-hmm. Um, or were presentations on new new things going on, new science, new experiments, new inventions. Um, and so those early lodges, you see a series of them that kind of collect. There's you know, the one that is specifically about putting on plays and uh, theater and theatrical kind of productions. There's uh, one that is very clearly interested in the Newtonian new science and new experiments and uh, the new... Uh, technologies kind of being developed and then you get you know the the one that's playing classical music specifically classical uh, italian uh, renaissance music of this time period in part because uh i talk a little bit about it in the book of the notion of this the grand tour of um, aristocracy going on this tour of continental europe at about the age of 21 it's meant to be an education in the sense of wine, women, and songs. It's meant to, they, there's debauchery as part of the grand tour. They go to Italy, they see all this great architecture and they imbibe too heavily and they 
you know, uh, hook up with the locals and then they come back and this has been a big experience in their lives. Right. And so, you know, this aristocracy is it's joining these different lodges in some ways, hearkening to some of the, the architecture, but also some of the music and some of the art that they've seen during this grand tour. And so uh, the one lodge I described a little bit in the book has, is interested in putting on these, uh, uh, Italian musical compositions. That's that's their jam. That's what the way they want to do. Um, and that particular lodge comes under the scrutiny of the Grand Lodge for whatever reason. Um, we don't really get it from their minutes, but like Grand Lodge officers show up and within a year, the lodge dissipates and uh, gives up its charter and the members go elsewhere. So, <laughs> so it's interesting to see they have different sort of by lodge, different focuses right different interests that they have um and that's within the london lodges you can see that not to say anything about some of the other lodges in rural areas or in scotland or ireland yeah that was fascinating to me i I never considered that i i I always imagined it the the history that is of freemasonry would be a a lot more uh organized but probably probably not so much at all and it i uh, idiotic because it's not so organized now so (laughs) Pat, looks like you had some. Well, it's, Go ahead, Jamie. Well, I was going to say it does look like um, when I was reading that part as well, I, I, I thought about the um, Benjamin Franklin and his, how do you say, Junto or is it Junto or Junto? You know, that group that he had where they had discussions about philosophical ideas um, and the Hellfire Club, which I guess, I guess is a different sort of affinity group. If we're talking about lodges as affinity groups, like today, there's like karate lodges or there's police officer lodges there's cowboy um, lodges all kinds of uh, cowboy lodges right so i wonder um did what what was sort of the model i guess was it coming from the guilds and the collegia i mean is there a line through the i guess you would say collegia then guilds then um then lodges i mean what did where did that element kind of arise from yeah well i i think there is clearly some element that goes from the guild to the speculative lodges. I think that that's um, pretty clear from the history that there's elements of that that carry over and there's members that are intertwined between the two, even from the premier grand lodge uh, you Mm. see some of the rifts and some of the fighting is between people who are probably from that operative uh, guild system that was breaking down and disintegrating as stone was no longer being used. Um, and, right. and obviously from something of the college as they develop in Italy and France and then spread to the rest of Europe and become the universities as the, uh, the seven liberal arts become kind of a standard part of the curricula. Um, sure. But then, you know, as we see that develop into the speculative craft as, as Freemasonry becomes something different from the guild, um, the problem and the question i guess in part becomes what is it going to be who has control who can say that's not regular you can't do that anymore that's irregular and if you do that you're outside the boundaries you're outside of the lines right maintaining or even uh, exerting that initial control did not come easily there's you know basically right. a century then of an ongoing fighting and debates and rifts about what what makes up proper masonry and what's outside the pale 
Um, and, you know, with groups like Dashwood's uh, Hellfire Club, that's intentionally pushing past the line to see, well, who's going to crack down? Who's going to stop us? Like, what's going to be the, the consequences of us pushing at the time, you know, considering the new Hanoverian line and some of the uh, desire to maintain the old Jacobite um, kind of uh, control, especially among Masonic lodges. You know, you see them intentionally breaking rules and pushing the boundaries in what would have been free speech and expression of the day to, to see if they'd be censored and to see what would happen. And ultimately, you know, when you have wealth of that uh, level and magnitude, if you want to go to your country estate, build a massive hall, put whatever symbols you like on it and do whatever kinds of rituals and initiations you like, who is going to stop you, right? And so it becomes a very muddy history and a very salacious history of sorts that I think, you know, when I I did the descriptor for the book, I don't think people realize just how hot the history of masonry really is. There's some parts about it that involve, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of part (laughs) of the, the early history that today you walk into a Masonic lodge and you might think, well, this is you know, stuffy and sterile and dry. But then, you know, as I read the early history of Freemasonry and you're like, whoa, this is, this is spicy. You know, so I feel like that's not appreciated sometimes for a lot of uh, Freemasons and, and maybe historians even. Pat, what do you got? I was just, I, I love that, 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 what do you, spicy when you Freemason. lined over, I was like, yes, yeah, spicy Freemasonry. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Spicy launch. Not what I, what, I, what I would have thought, but it's it's in the book, and it's fascinating to, to read it. Um, I was just kind of curious about how, you know, researching this book, uh, how it changed your understanding of Freemasonry and kind of what you think what you think of as Freemasonry. Has, did that change at all when you were when you were done with this? I think, so I was at least somewhat familiar with some hermetic literature and uh, the ideas of of the hermetic sciences a little bit before I joined Freemasonry. Uh, And so when I joined the fraternity and went through the degrees, some of the symbols popped out to me because I saw them and thought, well, that's some hermetic stuff going on right there. Um, And it, I, I think kind of, to me popped in my head that there is some hermetic stuff. What is, why is that in here? What's going on? And then as I did research, there was part of me that thought, well, maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe these are like false breadcrumbs kind of thing. Right. And, but then I think the more I did research and read different um, books, part of uh, the books that were on our early reading list for, uh, for my lodge and, you know, I'd read different component parts, parts of the history, the symbolism, ritual stuff that confirmed to me like, no, those really are there. That is, that was intentional. It's by design. And those are meant to be clues to, to dig deeper into how this is woven together. These hermetic arts and sciences are subtly placed here for the Blue Lodge degrees and then have connections to things like what develops into the Scottish Rite and some of those uh, degrees as well. And so I think as uh, I wrote the book, I became a little bit more confirmed and confident that what I was saying wasn't just, you know, wasn't just crazy, but that was actually 
something that had been woven into the degrees on purpose. And I think that that has been something that developed my interest in the symbols and degrees more and more as I've done the research and found more and more parts that tie that together. It's become more of something of, of interest to me. So uh, along those lines, I mean, you feel you felt like uh, vindicated over time. You were like, "Wait, this this is intentional. These things are intentional." You've I think maybe vindicated. That's yeah. maybe one way to think of it. You know, <laughs> I think I think a lot of people have had this kind of experience where I joined my lodge, um, and we have a wide range of brothers by age, by experience, by education level, by uh, working careers, all those kinds of things, um, and there were parts of the rituals as I went through them and went through my study materials. And I would ask brothers who had a lot of experience who've been around for a long time about some of the symbols. And they oftentimes weren't really sure or um, didn't even really know where to point me in the right direction for further study mm -hmm. uh, to maybe find out for myself what those symbols might have meant to the original designers of the degrees or the like. Um, and I wish there had been, something like that that was approachable and had a lot of that basic material. And so in part, I think that's why I started doing those presentations, tried to keep them entertaining and funny, like my lectures are for my students. Students otherwise lose their attention span and interest really quickly if you don't have some funny jokes and those kind of one-liners in there somewhere. And so I designed my uh, presentations for my lodges the same way, talking about some of these symbols, the places in the rituals, the history, um, to see if people could um, sort of poke holes in the argument or uh, see where there might be something else that I was missing. And um, also to hear feedback about whether there were parts that didn't make sense when I was explaining them, if they were too highfalutin or if they uh, were too outside, you know, sort of the the boundaries of what we would normally be talking about. Um, and so I think over time, maybe vindicated, but maybe just a feeling more confirmed that as people heard the presentations and have read the book and given me feedback that they uh, see sort of what I'm seeing and see some of the, the common bases uh, that form that foundation. And hopefully will then en enable people to, from that kind of base, go off and do their own research more deeply into the very rich tapestry that makes up this uh, history because there's a lot of different avenues and tributaries from which to do your own research once you have that foundation. But that foundation is critical. It's really important. Yeah. What was, what was great was that you, and some of us saw those early presentations, the presentations that would culminate in this book. And it was really great that you spent time strengthening this material and, you know, supporting it and kind of, um, and streamlining it, you know, like you've taken hours and hours of a collection of sort of modular presentations and then kind of, um, you know, again, strengthen them against the, you know, um, the, the, you know, the, the iron of, of, you know, people in the lodge and then, you know, just presenting them to brothers and then, you know, putting them together in, uh, such a, you know, refined way in this book, I thought was really cool to see that progress. It's a great book. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I, I know you guys have seen at least uh, probably one of the presentations and I've, I've got, you know, several of them that I've 
I've done it at my home lodge, got feedback, and then gone to other lodges, got feedback again. Um, I think, you know, in writing the book, and I know, Jamie, you know, I've talked about this as a kind of a, a problem of sorts of in writing, of knowing like where to stop and what to include and exclude. It's kind of that, uh, that same concept of curation. There's lots of things you could include in these lineages of alchemy, of Freemasonry, of some of the biblical materials, knowing what are the pieces that are really critical to uh, establish that foundation. What are the things that you can allude to so that people can go off and do their own research later? What are the things that unfortunately get edited and cut out kind of thing, right? So, uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I think hearing feedback from a lot of different audiences help me to make some of those decisions and help me to appreciate how difficult the the process of curation really is. The, the, other, the other question I, I really wanted to, to talk to you about before, before we end up wrapping up um, is, you know, we, we learned so much, you know, that the, the past influences the future, you know, and, and what, and masonry right now is kind of going through this Renaissance Um what what can we learn from the past that, to make a better masonry for tomorrow? Is there anything that uh, any lessons that you've taken from this where you're like, mm, watch out for this red flag or more beer or, in the lodge? That was more, that you, more, knew, more, you knew what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> more um, beer in the lodge. All right. I, I are we moving back to the pubs and alehouses? I don't know. No. Uh, well, I guess you know I, I'm I'm only half maybe joking. It's a little tongue in cheek, but you know that's maybe one thing that's worth at least a mention is, you know, from the past to the future. I think when you look at the magic of masonry, in the sense of it's a very simple concept of setting aside politics and religion, coming together, sitting in lodge, um, a, a few basics of belief. Um, but from that, building some basic levels of respect and tolerance between people who otherwise would maybe not come together. It's a simple idea. Um, and yet it doesn't always take place so easily in societies, especially as there are rifts and divisions, religious and political rifts and divisions in societies. Um, and you see in the life of Ashmole and early Freemasonry, even during the terrible rifts that take place during the 30 years war and the English civil wars. They're experimenting with this idea of coming together, sitting, breaking bread and not talking about religion and politics and building some base levels of trust. And from that concept, it spreads around the world and it works incredibly well as one of the most successful uh, fraternities, initiatory fraternities of the modern period. Um, so from that simple kind of idea, right? And so I think, you know, looking at that in, in the aftermath of that history of the 30 years war and the English civil wars and thinking about some of the tensions of our own society of religion and political cleavages and divisions, you know, looking to that history and seeing why during their intense time periods of division, why that worked effectively and what we might be able to draw from that today in our own sort of tense time periods. Um, you know, and, and I guess in consideration of the pubs and the alehouses um, that really are the settings for these early speculative Masonic lodges, 
I think there is really something to the festive boards, the uh, different kinds of ways that we break bread and spend time with one another that aren't just doing stated meetings or initiations, even really well done ritual. There's something that's important to us breaking bread, sitting together and talking about other concerns, other parts of life, of difficulties of being men in in society today, that you won't talk about those things in a stated meeting or during the ritual. So it becomes increasingly important for us to have time periods for Lodge where we just sit and shoot the breeze and talk about what's going on as brothers and I think, you know, different lodges will develop that as part of their culture in different ways. At my lodge, we have dinner beforehand, uh, but after lodge, after stated meetings, after educations, after uh, initiations, we also have a local pub that we go to and just hang out for a little while. And it's really one of the things that binds us together. It really brings that cement of brotherly love together because we talk about things that are not directly related to Freemasonry, but binds us together as a lodge, as a, as a community, as a group of brothers who care about one another. So I think, you know, in looking to that part of the history of the past, there is something important that maybe is missing from a lot of Masonic lodges and their cultures today that when younger guys come in, do they feel like they're building bonds with older guys or members who've been around more? Or do they feel like we're just coming in, taking care of business, um, doing ritual, maybe really good ritual, and then going home? I think that there's something essential that is part of an ingredient, part of the, the recipe that makes a really good lodge, that it needs to have something that is feasting, festive boards, table lodges, or going to the local pub and, you know, sharing a, uh, some food and, and drink and talking to one another. And I think that that's something you can really look to from our past that maybe can influence us as we go through this kind of renaissance, this kind of rebirth. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Of course, we don't have much of a formula for these episodes, but one thing we like to do is mention a few books. Um, that we like, but I think for this particular episode, it'd be cool to hear maybe a few books that influenced you, Masonic books or non-Masonic books that either influenced, you know, your uh, research for the book that, that you've wrote um, or just your Masonic journey in general. And then, of course, we'll link those in the uh, show notes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I would say I was thinking, you know, uh, also of like books I uh recommend oftentimes to masons and things like that uh genesis of freemasonry david harrison's uh history is probably uh one of my favorites as far as history goes really well done really well researched and cited uh he has uh um, a new book coming out it's about uh john yarker and and some of the different degrees and how they uh, uh developed in conjunction with masonry as it developed. So I'm always really interested in his research. I feel like the Genesis of Freemasonry is one of those critical books to read for Masons as far as history goes. Um, Albert Pike's Esoterica for the symbolism uh, of the Blue Lodge degrees, I think is critical for uh, new Masons as if they want to see where some of the symbols and particularly how they're connected to the hermetic sciences and um, symbolism from uh, Hermes really well done. Uh, kind of a, a denser read maybe, but um, I think you get a lot out of it as far as the symbolism and those kind of things uh, go. So those are 
I think two of the books I recommend, I think pretty commonly um, to, to people. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're in the Scottish Rite, I think the esoterica is part of that curriculum for the master craftsman program. So um, right. And I think, you know, in part what's so, uh, it's really focuses though on the Blue Lodge degrees. So even right. though it is part of the Scottish Rites uh, curriculum, um, it's really, again, meant to do some background to give you a foundation to understand totally. what the, those three degrees and those symbols are as they develop those other uh, degrees for the Scottish Rite. So where can uh, of course triaprima.com wait what's our new website pat triapremapress.com triapremapress.com okay we have two websites triaprima.co you go there for our blogs you go there for the podcast but if you're looking for Nate's book you're going to go to triapremapress.com um, you can find it on, on there. You can, I'm sure find it on Lulu as well. And in fact, I wanted to announce here that, um, it will be open for global distribution here, I think in the next few weeks. So you will be able to get it around the globe through Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of the like too. So, uh, of course we'll notify everyone when that happens. Nate, did you have any final well, thoughts? Point this out too. The yeah. triaprima.co uh, is where the my blog post about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles can also oh, be found. Right. Yeah, uh, which is one of the hot blog posts uh, that's up right now. So definitely worth checking out. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely check that out. People, there, there are a couple, a couple opinions on the on the uh, the, the Facebook page. So uh, lovers and haters, you know what I mean. <laughs> I, uh, when I first proposed the idea. Uh, to uh, uh, one of our fellow Masons, who's also a uh, martial artist. And I at first hinted towards like, maybe we should drop one of the Ninja Turtles and replace. And that got some oh. hard pushback. I mean, there's Who do some- you drop? I hinted, I don't know if I should say this while we're recording, but I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, I hinted that maybe Donatello gets replaced I know it, it did not go well. Um, so I immediately realized that's not going to fly. Um, and I, I admit, I mean, Donatello, great part of the team. I'm not trying to take anything away. I was just trying to see who would maybe be the best one if you're going to replace. Not a popular opinion. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, we're... Dr- we're- are there four of them? Some real there are controversy four. Here. Yeah, there are four, four right? and I was proposing, I mean, I'm just saying that Sandro Botticelli deserves maybe a namesake turtle. There should be a fifth turtle. And I, they just came out with a new movie. I know they're building up the franchise again. I'm just saying that maybe in the next movie, we, you know. Maybe it's like the, the hidden wise one. Like, you know, they go back to their old neighborhood or something and he's the the, the OG sort of. Could be their cousin or whatever, you know. I don't know. <laughs> He's, he's, he'd be they like just, the D'Artagnan of the. <laughs> they just aired that uh, Botticelli film, that new film at the Phoenix Art Museum oh, right. here. Uh, Dave Fierro and I went to go mm. see it. It was really great. Did you see that one yet? Botticelli. Yeah, Ooh. it might still be. I don't know if it's still playing there, but really great film. Well, but, Nate. Uh, thanks thank so you. much, Nate. This has been fantastic. Talking about the book, I've got mine right here. I know people can't see it because we're just doing audio, I think. But, um, yeah, really 
smashing job. I mean, and, uh, you know, just condensing all that down into something, read something enjoyable, you know, to sit there and read. I had like no problem reading it. It was really, um, really just an enjoyable read. I think I put it down in like two days, you know, which is for me, that's pretty, that's pretty rare. Normally I'm like reading a page twice and things like that, but you, you really did take your time to get this tweak to right where it needs to be for readability, for, for retention and things like that. It's just a fantastic job. Awesome. Thanks. Totally agree. All right. Well, everybody that's listening, thank you for tuning in. Nate, do you have anything scheduled coming up? Any talks or any other podcasts? Anything to announce? Um, nothing I can think of really right now. Um, uh-huh. yeah, nothing. He'll nothing be around on, uh, on the agenda, but yeah, I'll definitely be around. Yeah. Where can they? Do you announce your any of that stuff on your Facebook page? Any anything like that? Uh, events. That yeah, I, uh, I usually yeah, I, I do uh, usually post uh, podcasts and the like uh, links on my Facebook and Instagram and uh, yeah, perfect. So if I schedule right. them. You'll definitely see them there. We'll keep up with Nate. Nate, thanks again. You've been great. You're the man. We're lucky thanks, to have guys. you here in yeah, Arizona really and in the uh, craft. Getting a chance to to talk to you guys tonight. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>